When you're building a building, and not that I know, but this is what I've read online on the interwebs, when you're building a building, there's a lot that you have to figure out uh, to build it properly and to get it ready. You have to get everything ready if you're going to build it. You have to, uh, obviously, buy a piece of land unless you've somehow invented a flying building. Uh, you have to get the appropriate permits uh, from the city, and um, from what I understand, that can be a little bit tricky unless you know a guy. You have to actually have plans for the building. It turns out the buildings turn out much better if you plan in advance what they might look like. Uh, you might have to get bids on how much it's going to cost. Then once you get all this stuff lined out, you actually have the construction. And then once the thing is built, an inspector comes in and tells you something is wrong and nobody can be in it. Uh, so there's these plans. What, how do you build something? Well, this is how you build something. You buy land, you make plans, you build the thing, uh, you jump over the hoops, uh, and, or through the hoops if you do it that way. You know, Jesus is building something too, and we discover this in Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible tells us that Jesus is building a household of faith in which he has his dwelling. That he's building a home for himself in his people. And so what you might ask yourself, maybe, uh, you know, at least I did, is, well, how does he do that? Does he get the proper permits? Did he buy a piece of land? Did he make plans? How is it that he is going to grow us into a dwelling for himself? What are the means by which he's going to grow us into a dwelling for uh, God himself? And the, the passage today addresses that through a prayer. Paul is praying for the church, and through this prayer, he wants to let us know how Christ is going to build us into a dwelling for himself. So let's read again verses 14 and 15 if you have it open. If not, I'll read it again for you. Ephesians 3, 14 through 15, Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We're going to stop there. I know it's the middle of a sentence, but we're going to stop there. So Paul says this, I'm going to, For this reason I'm going to bow on my knees before God, and I'm going to seek Him in prayer. What is Paul praying for? You have to look back at Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 19. If you've got a paper Bible, it's probably on the same page. You may not even have to flip it. Ephesians 2.19, this is what was written there. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. So Paul says all these people are coming together and receiving Christ uh, by the power of the gospel. People are trusting in him for forgiveness of sins. And he's saying when you do that, you're no longer on the outside. You're on the inside. No longer aliens and strangers, but you're on the inside. And this was important during that time because there was a division among individuals. There was those who were Jewish who had said, uh, we're Jewish, so we're on the inside. And if you're Gentile, you're on the outside. And Paul says, no, no, no. In Christ, you're on the inside. In Christ, you're being built into a household of faith. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, whether you're uh, this background or that background, it's uh, in, in the kingdom of God, there's just two. In Christ and not in Christ. And in Christ, you're in. And you're being built into a household of faith. And Paul realizes this, and he says, we're being built into a household of faith. All this 
uh, all these different kinds of people, different kinds of backgrounds. Well, what needs to happen so that we're built up into a household of faith? He says, for this reason, I, and then what does he say? Bow down on my knees. Look again at Ephesians 3.14. You already forgot. It's okay. You just read it once. Because we're being built into a household of faith, Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So if we're going to grow in Jesus together as a household of faith, if we're going to grow in Jesus together, there's a couple of things that are going to need to happen. First of all, Paul shows us this, pray for help. Pray for help. If we're going to grow in Jesus together as a household of faith, we must pray for help. Uh, Paul is saying, on my knees I pray before the Father. On my knees I'm asking God for his help to grow us into the household of faith. What does it mean? What does it look like for him to be on his knees? Well, he's on his knees. He's humbly requesting God. God, build us into the household of faith. He's coming to God in a stance of of humility and seeking God's favor. He's coming to God expecting God to answer, but he's not coming to God assuming or uh, expecting God has to do it because he's prayed. He's coming to God in humility, on his knees, saying, Dear God, uh, we don't deserve it, but will you work to build us into a household of faith? Will you build to grow us in Jesus together? So he comes before God on his knees that God might be generous with his grace and pour out his grace on this church and say, I'm going to make you like Jesus as a body of believers. I'm going to make you like Jesus as individuals. Paul's not making an assumption here. He's not saying, well, I got all my ducks in a row and I know how to pray and I know the right words and the formula and I've read my Bible enough and I gave enough and I spent enough time volunteering enough so God has to do what I want. Because if, if you wanted to, to play games with Paul, he could do that. Pharisee of Pharisees. Super churchy guy. I think there's a t-shirt for those guys. But no, he, he comes before the father bowed. And look at what the father is like. But Paul is coming before him bowed on his knees, but look how he describes God. He just says, I'm coming before the father from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. So even though Paul is coming humbly and seeking God's grace and mercy, he's also saying the father here is a father figure. That one who created all of creation, uh, one who made every single person in the image of God. So God is gracious. God is generous. He's not coming before God humbly because he's worried God might smite him or smote him. He's coming before God humbly because he loves his father. He wants his father's grace and his father's generosity, but he's not going to presume upon it. But the father he is described in familial, familial terms. A, a generous and kind father who is the one uh, who created all people in his own uh, image. And Paul comes before the father and says, make us like Jesus. We, we can't do it without you. If you don't do a thing, we're not going to make it. If you, don't, if you don't work in my heart, I'm not going to be like Christ. And if you don't work in this church, we're not going to be like Jesus. God, would you do this gracious and generous thing for us? I might just ask this question for you to think about it. Um, what kinds of prayers are you praying generally when you find yourself on your knees? Now, like most of us, occasionally you're going to go into your room, close the door, and lock it. You don't want anybody coming in. And you're going to be on your knees praying. 
And usually there are certain kinds of things that happen in life that drive us to that place. And not, that's not a bad deal. That's a good deal that we find ourselves on our knees. Any good parent knows what their, their carpet smells like because they've been on their knees with their face in the carpet saying, oh, Lord, don't know what to do. Everything I try doesn't work. What kinds of prayers do you pray on the floor on your face? What kind of prayers move us to be on our knees seeking God's grace and generosity? Is it ever that we need to be like Jesus? When we see Paul on his knees here, we need to understand he's in that same place we often find ourselves in, but he is so moved that Christ might be formed in us and the church that he's on his knees seeking God's grace, saying nothing else matters in this moment. God, if you don't show up in this, we will not be like Christ. If you don't show up in this, this church will not be formed into the image of Christ. If you don't show up with your generous and grace, this building's going to fall apart. He understood that in order to grow in Christ together, he had to pray for help, and he prayed for help in, in a way that we might consider desperate. I tried everything. It's not working, God. You're going to have to do something. And he found himself, found himself on his knees. This is what it says in verse 12. If you want to look up there, just a few verses above it, Paul says this. Because of Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So what I'm saying here is just because we're coming before the Lord humbly and perhaps even desperately does not mean we don't come before him boldly. We come before God boldly because Christ has forgiven us. There's no shame in coming before God. Our sins are washed away. There's no guilt to be presented. When we come before God in prayer, he's not going to list off all of the things that we've done wrong that week. He's already forgotten them. Jesus has already paid for them. The only ones reminding you of everything you've done wrong that week are the devil in your own mind, accusing you to try and keep you from coming to God in prayer. But we come to God humbly, but we come to him confidently and boldly saying, I'm in Christ. I get to come before the Father and ask him, Form Christ in me, because I'm not like him yet. Not even close. Growing in Jesus together, the first thing that has to happen is we must pray for help. Look how Ephesians ends. Flip over to the end of the book, Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 17. There's a familiar passage. Just before this passage was the verses that describe the... Um, armor of God, and we're going to get to that a little bit later in this message, but just after this, in verse 17, he talks about taking the helmet of the salvation and the sword of the Spirit, and then verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador. It's so interesting to me that after we get fully outfitted with the armor of God, he says, oh, you're still host. You need to pray like, like crazy. You say, well, I thought once we got armored up, we were good. He goes, oh, no, you're dead without me. Thank you for that. I mean, that's what's incredible. He's saying, pray. When are we supposed to be praying? At all times. Some of us are going for 50% of the time. 
to that end. Keep in mind, it's okay to pray with your eyes open, especially when you're driving. You say, well, I'm driving by the Spirit. No, you're not. You're going to be praying in person, doing that very often. All right, pray at all times in the Spirit. What is it like to pray in the Spirit? You've all prayed in the Spirit at one point in your life. You're trying to think of that time. Is it when I spoke in a language I didn't understand? Well, I don't know. No, here's what it is. Something bad happens. You don't know what, you have no idea. The wheels just came off your world. And then the car fell apart. And then the wheels bounced off something and hit you. That's how bad it was. And you hit your floor on your, in your room, close the door, you're ugly crying where every orifice has stuff coming out of it. And your prayer is something like this. God. And that's all you got. Anybody here ever prayed like that? That's all you, you had nothing else. Praying in the Spirit. Do you think God knew precisely what you were saying in that moment? Absolutely. Because the Spirit is using your heart and your mind and the, and the one word you could get out of your mouth. Praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance. To what end? Pray with all perseverance. Making supplication, that means requests for every saint. And what kinds of things is Paul praying for the saints? Because you might say, well, I don't know what to pray for him. Here's one. Make them like Jesus today. Do something in their life today, God, that by your spirit you'll form them a little bit more to be like Christ. All the time. Growing in Jesus together requires that we pray for help. Why are we praying? Because the devil will seek to destroy us. The, the devil is wanting us to abandon our love, abandon our prayer. He doesn't want us to pray because he understands that the only way we're going to be formed into the image of Christ together is if we're praying for that to be done in our hearts and in the hearts of one another. First thing, if you're building a building in the household of God and we're going to grow in Jesus together, is do what? Pray for help. Got a couple of other things to talk about, but I'll just say it this way. If you're not going to start there, the rest of this is just sort of whatever. You may as well go home and start prepping for the Super Bowl. Because this is the start and the finish and the, and the whole thing. Pray for help. Pray for help. All right, look with me at verse 16 of Ephesians 3. Let's keep going. Ephesians 3.16 says this. Paul again praying for us to the Father that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, excuse me, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength. We're going to stop there again in the middle of the sentence just the way it is. So if we're going to grow in Christ together, number one, pray for help. Number two, trust God's power. Trust God's power. Look at the end of verse 17. What are the two words there? He says he's going to pray that through the riches of God's glory, we would be rooted and grounded in love. Deep roots, firm foundation. Two pictures there. One is from the garden and one is from the builders. He's saying we, uh, he wants you in Christ to have deep roots into the love of Christ and have a firm foundation on the love of Christ. And why does this matter? 
Look at Psalms 1 for me. Psalms 1, beginning in verse 1. And we all love Psalms 1, but I'm going to ruin it for you today, so sorry. Psalms 1-1. You may have it memorized. I'm going to start reading while you look for it. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. What does this tree have? Deep roots in the water. Anybody want that? Yeah, we're in church. Answer's always Jesus. What do we need to do to do that? Verse 2. It's simple. It's not even that long of a thing. It's only one verse. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's all you got to do. It's a little problem. And we're not allowed to say this in church, so I'll say it so you don't have to. What if I don't? I mean, I like some parts of his law. I like the parts where it says don't lie so I can get my kids in trouble when they lie. I don't like the parts where it says don't lie and I'm doing my taxes. You know, because then it costs money. It's irritating. I mean, what if it's simple, just delight in his law? Well, but frankly, sometimes his law is not that delightful. Love your enemy as yourself? Well, that sounds very romantic, but what if your enemy's a jerk? Well, he probably is, he's your enemy. And then you realize the law is kind of a pain. And then he sort of adds to it, sort of an off-the-hand remark, you know, and just meditate on it day and night. What are you talking about? I can't think about anything more than two minutes. Day and night? Seems a little dull. I mean, there are other things to think about. Obviously, he just means sort of have it on mind. No, that's not what he means. He says, love the law of the Lord and spend all of your time thinking about it, and then you'll be planted like a tree next to the river. And some of you are going, well, that's never going to happen. Well, now you've got problems. It gets worse. See, I've ruined Psalm 1 for you, didn't I? James chapter 2. He said, well, that's okay. I don't meditate on it day and night, but at least I have good doctrine. I know what's right, and I know what's wrong, and when I hear something wrong, I know how to tell somebody they're wrong. It's a spiritual gift called the spiritual gift of correcting. I'm just making stuff up now at this point. So I don't meditate on it day and night, but I know what's wrong when I hear it, and if not, I at least know who to talk to. James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. So do the demons. It turns out the demons actually have really good doctrine. Okay, wait a minute. So just being right about everything doesn't fix the deal? doesn't root me and ground me. No. you got to meditate on the law day and night. And, and guess what? Even demons know what's right and wrong, and they're still not going to make it. So you say, well, you know what? That's fine and dandy, Mr. Fancy Pants. I have put my faith into practice. I do a lot of good works. I volunteer places. I give money away. Good. Let's just tear that one apart. I mean, let's take a look at that. Matthew 7, verse 21. Here's what Jesus said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Listen what he says. On that day, 
Many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Do you know what's interesting about this? He does not dispute that they did these things. He doesn't say, oh, no, you didn't do those things. These things happened. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So knowing the right doctrine is not going to do it, and being Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, never do anything wrong is going to do it. How in the world am I going to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ? What am I going to do? Because I can't do it. That is exactly where the Bible wants us to be. It, it wants to drive us to the place where we say, well, what am I supposed to do, God? I can't do it. Got it. We're there. That's where he wants us. How can we rest in the strength of God if I'm strong? And so what Paul says here in Ephesians 3 is he wants God to be strong. He doesn't want us to be strong. Again, look back at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He is asking that God would, according to the riches of his glory, grant you to be strengthened. God will strengthen you. God does not want you strong. He wants to be your strength. God is not looking for your best potential. Your best potential is kind of lame. And I don't mean that badly. Of course, there's not a way for that to sound good, now that I think about it. It's just in comparison to the riches of God's strength, you just want your full potential. How about the full potential of God himself? Now, that sounds strong. But see, that's what we do. We settle for just being the best me. I don't want to be the best me. I want God to be God in me. And that's what Paul is praying for, is that we would finally get over ourselves and just trust God to be strong for us. God will strengthen you according to your, uh, good, how much good works you do, right? What does it say? According to what? The riches of his glory. So you're going to go to God and ask him for, uh, for a loan. And then you say, you know what? I'm not going to ask him for a loan. I'm going to pay it back. He knows it, and I know it. I'm going to ask him for some money. God, I need some money. And he's going to say, how much do you need? Best answer, however much you got. That's what Paul is praying for. How much mercy and grace and strength does he want God to give us? Whatever he's got. According to his strength, according to his riches, not according to our ability to deserve it, not according to our ability to use it really well, not according to our ability to even appreciate it. He is praying that we would trust in God to be strong in us and that we would get over our need to be strong. Look where the power comes from in the end of verse 16. That he may grant you to be strengthened with his power through his spirit in your inner being. He wants the Holy Spirit to move in us and change not just what we do, but the very desires of our heart. He wants to alter our thinking and the view, our view of the world around us and our view of him, not just in how we act in the world around us, but what's going on in our heart. The Holy Spirit being the power which can transform not just what we do, but what we actually desire. The Holy Spirit can change us so we no longer desire the sinful things of this world, but the holy things that God has to offer. Now, he does that over time, and that project will be done on the day of your funeral. So we need to keep that in mind. We're not home yet. But he's going to be constantly working to change our hearts that we might desire his things 
and not God's things. Let me put it this way. Just one last thing. I don't mean to pick on you. Uh, I'm just reading the Bible, so blame the Bible. Uh, so you might say, well, you know what I need to do? I need to be strong, so I'm going to read my Bible more. Right? That's, and that's a good thing you do, should do. Generally, regardless of how much you're reading the Bible, if you say, I'm going to read my Bible more, I'm probably not going to argue with that. Okay? Uh, so you say, you know, I'm going to make God, I'm going to achieve God's glory, I'm going to achieve his power by reading the Bible more. So here's what I'm going to share with you. If you want to read the Bible according to the Bible standards, there's just three simple things you have to do. Are you ready? Are you going to write these down? First of all, you have to read it without ceasing. Never stop reading it. So if you say, I want to read God's word his way, simple. Just never stop reading it. Okay? You're going to want to pick some of the more exciting parts. That Leviticus kind of slogs through a couple of places. Okay? Maybe a five-hour energy or something in there. Secondly, you're just going to need to commit it to memory as you're doing that. The sooner the better. Because as long as it's not fully committed to memory, you're falling short. Remember, reading the Bible day and night, meditating on it day and night, you can't do that if the thing's not stored in the brain. When you do that, you're going to forget of a lot of important things, mostly anniversaries and birthdays. <laughs> the last one is some of you are, are really studious. You know, I can do that. I can read all day long. At night, I'll put it on the audio thing so it's playing while I'm sleeping. And I think I've got a good memory bank. I think I can memorize it. I knew at least one guy who memorized the New Testament. He was really old. That's... Took that whole time, never got to the Old Testament. Uh, anyway, uh, the last one's the tricky one. You have to desire to read it and memorize it as badly as a hungry person desires to eat a honeycomb. All the time, without that ever changing. So every time you read it, you need to hunger for it as much as a hungry man desires to eat a honeycomb. So you got to read it, you got to memorize it, and then in your heart, all the time, you're just like, I can't get enough of this. Who's in? So what are we going to do? We, we're never going to meet God's standard of how much we're supposed to read his Bible and know it and desire it. I mean, most of us, we had us at the reading part, but now we got a hunger for it. Maybe we need to join Paul in praying, God, I'm going to have to rest in your power. You're going to have to make me like Jesus. You're going to have to transform me because I'm not like him yet. I'm going to have to trust that you're going to give me the power of your Holy Spirit to be changed as I come to you in repentance and faith each and every day. God, I, I, I blew it again. I don't want to do that anymore. You've got to change me. Christ in us is, is the power in which we're going to have deep roots into the love of Christ and, and grounded a, a firm foundation on the love of Christ, his love in us. Not rooted and grounded in perfect doctrine, although doctrine is important. Not rooted and grounded in good deeds, although uh, expressions of righteousness are important, but rooted and grounded in the fact that Jesus loves sinners. Growing in Christ together. First, pray for help. Secondly, Trust God's power, which is a polite way of saying we got to get over ourselves. We're not that impressive. I'm going to have to trust God to do the work and the heavy lifting in my life. All right, let's look at the last two verses, verses 18 and 19. Growing in Christ together, pray for help, trust God's power, and finally grow in Christ's love. Verse 18, rooted and grounded in his love, may we have strength to comprehend with all the saints what the breadth and length and height and depth 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What he's saying here is, I'm praying for you, church, that you would grow in your strength to know how much Jesus loves you. Look what he said. He said, strength to understand the breadth, length, height, depth. I'm not a mathematician, but that seems like all the directions. And to know the love of Christ. How much is his love that it actually requires a prayer of strength for us to see it? He says, no, if you saw this thing, it would blow you away. You'd, you'd, you'd fall apart. I pray that you would have the strength to plumb the depths of God's love, of the love of Christ for you. And think of it this way. If you go on a long hike, one time I took a hike in high school to the Marble Mountains, and you hike 20-some miles into the woods, and halfway in, you say, what are we doing? Could be home. And they say, hey, don't worry. When we get there, uh, the cooks and everybody have already taken the horses, so when we get there, dinner's ready. Dinner's ready. We're going to walk up to a hot meal. And so what ha- the way that works is the food is both our motivation and our fuel. We know the food is there, so keep walking. Just keep going. There is food to be had. And then once you get there, not only is the food motivating, but the food uh, replenishes your, your body. So the food is both the motivation and our fuel. And what Paul is saying is here, the love of Christ is our motivation. When the Christian life gets hard and we get discouraged, knowing that Christ loves us is motivating, isn't it? Well, it should be. No matter what happens, Christ's love is there. That's motivating. But it's not just our motivation. His love is also the fuel for the Christian life. Let me compare that so you understand what I'm saying. We we tend to think the love of Christ is our motivation, but the fuel of our Christian life is good, serious disciplines and habits. So Christ loves me, so therefore I'm going to do a bunch of good things to be like Jesus. So he and I, hand in hand, are going to work out Christ-likeness in me. And Jesus says, no, 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 how about this? I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to love you, and that's going to motivate you to worship me every single day, and I'm going to make you like me. His love is both the motivation as well as the fuel for becoming like Christ. His love is it. Look at Romans 1.16, or I'm going to read it probably before you get to it. Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul says, I'm not afraid of the good news, the gospel. What is the good news? Jesus died for sinners, and in faith we can be forgiven of all our sin. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of that. It's the power of God for all who believe. And he's going to make the argument in Romans that salvation is not just our conversion. It's our whole Christian life. The gospel is the, the power of God to make us like Jesus more and more each and every day. Good news that Christ's love is enough to make you like him. Christ's love is enough to form the contours of our life into the image of Jesus. The entire world and the devil, their full-time job is to convince you God doesn't love you. The full-time job is just sit there and hit you. He doesn't love you the way the Bible says he is. That pastor up there is off his rocker. He doesn't know what you did. The world is designed to hit us over and over and God doesn't love you. You should be ashamed of yourself. Do you remember what you did? You should be ashamed of that. How could God love someone who would do that? Oh, good for you. You you managed to not do it. Very self-controlled. If they knew what you were thinking, they wouldn't want you here today. 
See, the de- over and over again, he doesn't love you the way you think he does. What about all the suffering you're going through? Whispering in our ears. Obviously, God can't love you. He's making you go through such a hard thing. How could God, who is loving, make you go through such a difficult time? I have doubts in my mind. They cloud my mind. And if, if God really loved me, wouldn't he give me all the answers I have to all my questions? And the world and its systems and the devil, over and over again, he doesn't love you. He doesn't love you. Or even in our culture, we have so much. By God's grace and his mercy, he's blessed us with so much. And every now and then we think, man, I have so many things going on. God seems sort of, well, he's not the best thing I have going on. He's nice. But I have several other irons in the fire that are much more interesting. God may love me, but there's more interesting things to think about. Okay, look at Ephesians 6.10. We're going to close with this. Ephesians 6.10. We're going to tie this together. Ephesians 6.10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Does that language sound familiar? Sounds just like our passage today. He says, have the Lord's strength. Be strong in the Lord by the riches of his glory. And so these ideas are connected. Paul is circling back now at the end of the book saying, being strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Rest in the love of Christ. Well, how do we do that? Put on the whole armor of God that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. And this is what we're saying. The schemes of the devil are designed to convince you you are not loved the way the Bible says you are loved. The schemes of the devil are designed to remind you of your shortcomings, not Christ's perfection. The schemes of the devil are designed to remind you that you're never going to measure up instead of reminding you that Christ has measured up completely for you. Verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Nothing is more irritating to the evil spiritual forces in the heavenly places than the fact that Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you and me, and worse yet, he rose from the grave and ruined all their plans. Now the only thing they can do, because he has completely won, If it were the Super Bowl, okay, lame. You wouldn't watch the game. It's already over. There would be no need for a scoreboard. It would just be a big W. Jesus wins. The only thing the devil can do is convince you he doesn't love you. That's all he's got left is convince you that Jesus couldn't possibly love you the way the Bible said. And he spends all of his time convincing you you don't measure up. You should be ashamed of yourself. How could he love someone like you? If you read the Bible properly, the question actually is, how could he not? He is that loving. How do we know he's loving? Look at John 15, 12. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it quickly. John 15, 12. Jesus says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. How does Jesus love us? Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. Here's what love is, Jesus says. If someone lays his life down for his friends. And what are you saying? Friend, I'm doing that for you. I am, I'm laying my life down for you. And maybe you're saying, but he knew he was going to come back to life. What's the big deal? No, let's just very quickly. Jesus died in eternal death 
in a fairly short period of time from our standpoint. He took on the eternity of the punishment we should have borne. He died a death no one else has ever died. When he says, I lay my life down for you, my friend, he did lay his life down. He was separated from God for the first time of all of eternity, bereft of that relationship in that moment. He sets his life down for you, not because you deserve it, not because you're strong enough, not because you have a lot of potential, not because you have something to offer. He sets his life down for you because you're weak, you're broken, you're dead. And he says, I want to be your strength. I want to be your life. I want to be your hope. Grown in Jesus together. First of all, what was it? Pray for help. If you only take one thing from this message today, take that one. Pray for help. Secondly, trust in God's power, not our own ability to do it. Trust God is going to give us his strength and his spirit to overcome, not just in the outward, but even in our inner uh, thoughts and attitudes. And finally, grow in Christ's love. Do you want to be a mature Christian? Do you want to be a mature Christian? That's a fair question. Do I want to grow in my relationship with God? I'm going to give you the one thing you can do to grow and become a mature Christian. Know Christ's love in all its fullness. In every moment of every day, in every trial, ask yourself, does Jesus love me? And if yes, why am I not believing it? Why don't I believe it? If I, if I believed it, I wouldn't be feeling this way. I wouldn't be so uh, full of doubts, fears, and anxieties like we all are all the time. To grow in maturity, the single greatest thing you can do is turn to your Bible, turn to your friends and, with, uh, and praying with them and saying, does Christ love us the way he really says? And when we grow in Christ's love, we will grow in maturity. The, the, the problem with Christ's love is, and I mean that facetiously, it's like getting closer to, to the light. The closer to the light you get, you realize how undeserving you are. The closer you draw to Christ, the more you will realize you don't deserve his love, and the more you will realize the experience of his love. Okay, secondly, do you want to help others grow to love Jesus and know Jesus? Any, any takers on that one? I mean, we should kind of, kind of his charge on heading out, the, out of town was go and make disciples, so it might want to have that filed away. Do you want to help others grow? Show them Christ loves them. Well, I know, but there's these 17 steps they got to be able to do. You know, great, maybe they'll get it. Maybe they'll be like me and they can get three steps. But show them Christ loves them. There is not a single thing any person will face in all of life that is insurmountable in the love of Christ. They say, well, don't we have to tell them to stop sinning? I think Christ will figure that out for them. I think people who are loved by Jesus figure out how to do things he likes by the strength of the Spirit. And then, I, I'm, now I'm going to get in trouble again. Um, How's that work, the whole helping people not to sin deal? Let's just go that route. You just tell them, okay, yeah, you need to stop the naughty parts. And they always do, right? Okay, got some people doing that before. Okay, good. So why don't we give up on that little business that doesn't seem to be working well. Instead, just teach people. Hey, guess what? Jesus loves you. 
well, but, but that seems a little dicey. Well, yeah, you might have to actually spend a bunch of time praying because now you're letting go of some control here. You don't get to tell people how to live. You get to pray desperately that God might blow the doors off their life. But I trust a guy who loves Jesus in his heart more than a guy who has good discipline seven days out of seven. Because if Jesus' love is exploding in my heart, I'm going to do Jesus-y things. And maybe we should spend more time teaching one another how much Jesus loves us and see if Jesus-y things start flowing out of us. Show Christ's love to one another. Teach Christ's love to one another. This is especially important when the people in your life show their true colors and you find out they really are terrible at being good people. Every now and then, you discover your spouse is not the person you married. Maybe they need Christ's love. Every now and then, your close friends really blow it. Sometimes, perhaps, they need a good conversation about uh, what life looks like, but most of the time, we need Christ's love. One last thing, and then we're going to close. When we miss the love of Christ, and yet we still feel compelled to help people see how to live, we destroy their spiritual lives. When we miss the love of Christ, and yet still feel compelled to help people know how to live, we destroy their spiritual lives. If you are not compelled to convince somebody Christ loves them, then I just simply ask you to do nothing. Because to tell someone how to live for Jesus and to not convince them Jesus loves them will destroy them. Instead, just go home and pray for them. I think your prayer will be something like this. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like this one. Now I'm just being rude. I'm going to get in big trouble. The email address is... It's on the website. If you're sending it, I've probably already received it. All right. What can I do? just two things to think about. Number one, is there anybody in my life that I think might need to know Jesus loves them? How can I show them that? Now you can tell them Jesus loves you. That's good. But how can I show them the love of Christ? How can I show them how much Jesus loves them? One good start is forgiving them for all the stuff they've done against you. Kind of let go of that resentment and bitterness. That's a toughie. Secondly, pray for them. Pray that they might know the love of Jesus. One of your good friends this week is going to face a temptation they can't, they can't handle. They don't need accountability. They need you to be praying for them that they would overcome temptation. We forget the body of Christ is all connected. The, the, the stark reality is many of the failures we've experienced in our Christian life are our failures, but they're the result of somebody else didn't spend the time praying that God was hoping they would. Pray for your friends and your family that they might know the love of Christ. And that in that moment of temptation, they'll say, well, that looks nice. Jesus' love is better. And that will come not from their inner strength, not because they're a good person, but because you prayed and the Holy Spirit moved in them, and they saw the world for the way it really is. The world doesn't offer me anything that's better than the love of Jesus. Can we show people an unflinching, uncondemning, gracious love of Jesus?